0: Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and I want to welcome you to grace. If you are new here, you are joining us in the midst of our year long study in the book of Romans. Romans is a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and sent to early believers in the city of Rome back when the Roman Empire was still an empire. And when we read this letter, what we find is that time after time throughout this entire book or this letter that was written to early believers, what we find is this thread of discussing and and elaborating on why the gospel is such good news, right? The term gospel literally means good news. And when we read it in scripture, we know that the gospel is the good news specifically of Jesus Christ. Christ, And so as Paul is writing to these people in an incredibly influential place in this powerful, the seat of the empire from which they could transform the entire world, Paul's making sure verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we study it week by week, that he is giving them instruction of how to not only know the gospel, but how to apply the gospel and how to share the gospel with all the world around them. And so for us today, we still need to understand and then apply and then share this incredible good news of Jesus Christ. And last week when we were in Romans chapter 6, we saw that the gospel is such good news in part because it frees us from the dominance, from the, the power and domineering ability of sin in our lives, that we are no longer under the power of sin. It's no longer our master, that we've been freed and we can choose what is right. We can choose to live the life that God calls us to live because of Jesus Christ, because of our faith in him. And so this morning, we're gonna be opening up Romans chapter seven, starting in verse one. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn there. If you wanna just go there on your phone, we'll also have the verses on the screen. But what we're going to be reading in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, about how we have not only been freed from the domineering power of sin, but as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've also been freed from the power and authority of God's law. Because when we read the Bible, what we find is a lot of Law, especially as we read the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus in particular, we find a lot of instruction from God, a lot of commands, a lot of do's and don'ts, and do this thing, and don't do that thing, and and go this direction, and behave in this way. And God gave all these instructions, all these commands for the sake of his people, because he wanted them to understand and, and live out lives that reflect his values and his character. And for us, we still are are wanting to follow and obey the commands of God. But in order to do that, we need clarity around which of those commands are still applicable to us today that don't live in ancient Israel. We need to understand how this law, how these commands are meant to integrate into our lives as people who are saved, not by the law, not by our works, but instead people who are saved by God's grace through our faith, In Jesus Christ. Because if we don't have that clarity, if we don't fully understand how and why the law applies to us today, it leads to a lot of confusion. And confusion is not where any of us want to be. Confusion is where we see, you know, people all the time, especially these kids right here. I don't mind mind the ice. How do you mind the ice? (laughs) What does the, the moat have to have, Will? It has to have what? It has totals and Henry's mother said and it is a and budgets." <laughs> What's the word? Buttresses. Buttresses. A. C. E. Gorilla. Cool poo. Cool Ka- Kapu pow. <laughs> because she was taken out of a man. What? Taken out of a man? <laughs> <coughs> Without clarity, right? The words of God can be really hard. And it's hard for us to not even know what it's saying, but it can be hard for us to then apply that to our lives. And Paul knows this, right? Paul, as he's writing to these early believers in Rome, he knows that what they need is a better understanding. They need greater clarity around how the law applies in their lives, how God's commands affect their day to day living. And what he's going to explain in Romans 7 1 through 13 is that God has transformed, through Jesus Christ, God has transformed both the power and the purpose of his law in our lives, that the law is not done away with. It's not that the law is gone. Jesus himself says that I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. The law still has a purpose, but it's different. It's different from the purpose of the law before Jesus came, before Jesus made a way for us to know our heavenly father, right? That's that's the beauty of our gospel is that we could try to do all the right things all the time, but we will fail. We always fail, and when we err, when we step outside of the will of God, that's sin, and every single one of us are born into sin, right? Paul talks about this in Romans 5 and Romans 1, that we are all born into sin under the wrath of God, and yet while we were sinners, while we were dead in our trespass, while we were open rebels against God, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to fulfill that law perfectly. But then he died a death that he did not deserve, but instead it was a death that we, in fact, deserved. And so he that knew no sin became sin for our sake. He took on the sin of the world and he took it to the grave through the cross. And then on the third day, he rose over sin, over death, proving his power. He, he rose from that grave and he says, you can trust in me. You can now believe that my power and authority is greater than what previously held you captive. You can now call on my name. And if you call on me, you're free from sin. You're free from death. You're free from condemnation. And now through me, right, only through me, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, he says through me, you can have access to your heavenly father. This is the life that we live. This is the grace that we have received from the Lord. And so how does the law continue to function in our lives? This is where Paul's spending his time in Romans 7. All right, so if you'll look with me in verse 1, we're going to see Paul's beginning by addressing the power, the change in the power of the law in our lives. He says this, starting in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is Lord over a person as long as he lives. Okay, so Paul is being very clear. He says, I'm speaking to fellow believers. He says, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who I'm addressing. So this isn't meant for the world at large. This isn't meant for people who have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He says, this isn't isn't their deal. This isn't something that they're working with. It says, but for those of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ, for those of you that even more specifically, says you, you understand, you've heard, you've been told whether you grew up Jewish or even if you grew up as a Greek, he says you are aware of how law functions and you're aware of how God has given us a law. He's given us commands. It says, you know these things. He says, and you know that the law of the Lord is over a person as long as he lives, right? That's what you've been taught. That's what you've understood, that that your relationship to God is dependent upon your obedience to this law. And he gives an illustration. He says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law of marriage. Okay, so Paul is explaining. He's not. He's not getting into. He's not trying to explain uh, marriage and divorce. He's not trying to get into all that. He's just giving you an illustration. He says, "Imagine if someone is married. If this woman's married to a man, she's bound to him by law. But if he dies, then okay, she's released. Obviously, right? So that's that's a clear release is through the death of that spouse. He says. So then, verse three. So then, if she is joined to another man while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And, she's, and if she is joined to another man, she's not an adulteress. Again, Paul's not trying to get into biblical grounds or, or methodology for divorce. What he's doing is he's simply using this as an illustration for the believer. It says that if death takes place in that marriage... Says, then there's a freedom, there's a release that, that comes about. And so he summarizes this in verse four. He says, So, in the same way, right, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you could be joined to another, to the one who raised you from the dead to bear fruit to God. Right, so, Paul is just summarizing this illustration. He says, just as a spouse is released by the death of their spouse to that marriage covenant, to that marriage law, he says, so too you have died to the law. He's using here the exact same phrase, the exact same terms that he used in chapter six when he talks about how we died to sin, that we died to sin through Christ who was buried and raised as our representative. He says, you were united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Therefore, sin holds no power. Here, right here, he's saying the exact same thing about the law. He says, you, were die, you died with Christ, and therefore, through that death, you were released from your previous master or guardian, as he says in other letters. He says, you've been released from the law so that you could be joined to another, so that you could be joined to specifically Jesus Christ, the one who is raised from the dead. And you've been released so that you can live for the Lord. So he says, it's not that you're released from the law, therefore you're lawless. Therefore you just do whatever you want. He says, That's, I'm not giving you permissions for license, right? He talked about that a lot in chapter six. He says, but you have been released from the law so that you can live a life according to the commands of God, not out of obligation and fear, but that you would live this life, that you would bear this fruit out of a relationship. But it's not just based on rules and regulations, but instead you now have a relationship with the Lord because you have been joined with Christ, your Savior. Four verse 5, says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And so here Paul is going to be, he's speaking about how the law functioned. And unfortunately, the way that the law was twisted By sin. He says, when we were in the flesh, when we were apart from Christ, he says that the sinful desires that we have, they are simply awakened or inflamed by the law. And they're active in us, right? If we're told you shouldn't, you know, go over, like, don't touch that wet paint. There's a part of us that's like, I gotta touch that wet paint, right? As soon as we see that sign that says no fishing, you're like, I don't even like fishing, but I think I wanna fish right here for some reason. Paul says, this is how we are broken by sin. And what came of that is simply death, right? We would bear fruit for death. He says, but now in verse six, now we have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us so that we may serve in the new life of the spirit and not under the old written code. All right, so here Paul is just, he's summarizing what he just said in verses one through five. He says, we have been released, we've been freed, we've been loosed from the law because we died with Christ. He says, but that death does not, again, give us just license to live however we wanna live. He says, that's not the purpose, that's not the goal of this freedom. He says, the goal, the purpose of this freedom is that we would serve in this new life of the spirit, this new life of the spirit, not under the old written code says, you have now the law of God. You have the commands of God written on our hearts, right? In the Old Testament times before Jesus, the commands of God were written on stone tablets. What we're told is that now we have God's command. We have God's will written on our hearts because we are led by God's spirit. The Spirit of God who indwells every believer. He says, this is the new life. And this term here, the Greek term for new, it's not just something that's recent. It's not like the most recent, like updated, oh, this is law, 15 pro. Like this is not what he's talking about. This new is something that is brand new, something that is fresh, something that is novel, that's the term he's using. So he says that you now, we now may serve in this new, this brand new, original, fresh life. And it is guided by the spirit, not by the stone tablets that were given to your forefathers. Right? We live according to the leading of the Lord, by the command, by the direction of his spirit. So ultimately, right, ideally what he's saying is that we now, as believers are freed to serve the Lord. And the law is still important, right? We can still study. We should study the things of God, what he says and what he commands and what he's revealed about himself. That's still important. He says, but ultimately we don't serve that law. We serve the Lord himself, the one who wrote that law, the one who gave those commands. That's ultimately who we're focused on, who we serve. Another one of our teaching pastors, Matt Morton out at our Creekside campus had an amazing illustration of this when we were talking about it this week where he talked about how, you know, he and his wife, Shannon, had been married for years and years and years. And he says, and it's not for him, in that marriage, in that relationship, he says, it's not that I need to put a sticker on my bathroom window or on my bathroom mirror that says, don't commit adultery. And then, you know, every morning when I wake up and brush my teeth, I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna commit adultery because that sticker tells me not to. He says, that, that doesn't make any sense. He says, that's, that's, that's missing the point. He says, the reason I don't commit adultery is because I love my wife, right? Because I care about Shannon. It's not because I have a, a magical, you know, master sticky note stuck somewhere in my house. In the same way, we now belong to the Lord. We're united with Christ and we have a relationship with, with the God of the universe. And so we, le- we live lives according to his purpose, according to his will, according to his command, because we love him. We, we obey out of love, not legalism. But again, it's still important for us to study and to understand what he's given us, right? It's important for us to understand the law. Specifically, one of the things that Paul doesn't get into here, but he will later in the book, is the fact that the law had different components. There were different areas or focus for the law given to Israel, Scholars today break it down into basically three main categories of law that was given. There was moral law, meaning how do I relate with God and how do I relate with other people and my behavior. There was civil law, which is how do I function under a theocracy, right? God was their king, and so there was a lot of civil code and command in the law. There was also ceremonial law. that that told people this is how you can approach God, this is what you need, these are the rituals, these are the rites, these are the festivals you need to celebrate, these are the ways you cleanse and prepare yourself for offering. And so when we read scriptures, we read through the ministry of Jesus Christ, it's very, very clear that those ceremonial practices, that those civil practices, that those things don't actually apply to us. Because Jesus Christ came as our new high priest, a greater high priest who's made a way for us to access the throne of God with confidence, apart from those old rites and rituals, The ceremonial law is not for us. In the same way, the civil law is not for us. We don't serve. God is not our our political authority here in this world. He has authority over whatever authorities do exist, but, but we don't live in a theocracy. And so we know very clearly, okay, the ceremonial law, that civil law, it's not something that's for us now. But there are parts of that moral law that still ring true. Jesus himself quotes it over and over again. He, he calls back to the moral law talking, hey, you've heard it said, you shouldn't commit adultery. Hey, you've heard it said, you shouldn't commit murder. And when Jesus would refer to these old written laws, what he does is he often would tweak them. He would often add to it. He'd say, you know, you shouldn't murder, but also if you hate someone, it's basically the same thing, right? It's the state of your heart that really matters. If you don't commit adultery physically, okay, but if you're lustful in your heart, that's the same thing, right? So again, it's the, it's the state of your heart and your mind. So elements of that moral law are still very important for us. Paul's gonna use one as an example in just a few verses. But what we're told here in scripture, what we, what we understand as we study the law of God is that yes, there is still command and direction and wisdom from the Lord to his people that we should still hold close to, that we should study in depth. This is one of the reasons why a few pastors here and myself decided, hey, this is a great opportunity for us. This time in the book of Romans is a great moment for us to maybe go even deeper in our study of salvation, right? We've, I talked about this last Sunday. We have registration on, on our website now. It wasn't, on, it wasn't up last Sunday. I apologize, but we essentially are doing first three Thursdays in November, starting this Thursday, 7 o'clock to 8.30, out in the parking lot portable here at Southwood, we're going to be studying salvation. This is what we call soteriology. And we're going into detail, into greater depth of understanding, okay, how does salvation work? Election and predestination and sanctification and justification. Like, how do these elements play into our lives? What is God's commands? What are God's instructions that we should study as we seek to live out this incredible gift of salvation that he's given to us. So I'd encourage you, if this is something that you wanna go deeper into, something you'd love to learn about or discuss, join us this Thursday, 7 p.m., right here at Southwood. You can register online, just helps us know how many chairs to set out. Uh, But honestly, you can also just show up. right, but we know that, yes, the law of the Lord, the commands of God, the instruction of God, it still has incredible value. But unfortunately, sometimes we take it to the extreme the same way that the Pharisees did back in Jesus's time. Where we flip the script, we, we turn it on its head and we become people that spend a lot of time maybe studying the Lord and then serving the law. People who think that the Lord is maybe someone to be you know, examined. We maybe, we're in a very academic town here, right? We've got a university, we've got you know, a lot of really intelligent people. And so there's a proclivity, there's a, there's a tendency in us to maybe think, you know what, I, I want to study. I want to learn these things just because I love to learn, because I love to study. Or maybe I'm going to learn these things because I think that's how the Lord will then approve of me, right? And I'm going to obey these commands. I'm going to check these boxes because that's the way that I earn favor in the Lord's sight. That's how I earn my place in his family. And this is misguided. But again, God is calling us into a relationship not into new rules and regulations and obligations. God wants a relationship with us. And when we take out the relational component from our, from our, our faith, from our walk, from our spiritual growth, we're missing the point. I, I remember this being displayed really clearly uh, in the great work of Jane Austen. Uh, she has a book called Pride and Prejudice. Some of you may be familiar that in this book, in Pride and Prejudice, I grew up with two sisters, so like, I'm all about it. And so I, I saw in Pride and Prejudice the, the courtship of Elizabeth and her sister, who also has a name. And then what you see through this book is that Elizabeth, the young firebrand, that she's courted by multiple suitors until eventually she lands with a guy. But, but on her way towards that wonderful relationship with Mr. Darcy, she has... A proposal given to her by a guy named Mr. Collins, who is a, yeah, <laughs> we're already hissing at. <laughs> Mr. Collins, who was a preacher and <laughs> tried his best to essentially woo Elizabeth and gave her this marriage proposal that I, <laughs> I pulled the quote. I'm putting it up here. I'm just going to read it for us. And this is, he's, he's speaking to Elizabeth. He's met her a few times. He says, Almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with by my feelings on this subject, perhaps it would be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying. Right? He's going to lay out, this is why we should be married. And moreover, my reasons for coming into Hertfordshire with the design of selecting a wife, as I certainly did. my reasons for marrying are first, that I think it is a right time, it is a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstance like myself to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, I'm convinced that it will add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady who I have the honor of calling patroness. So, says, in other words, my, my primary donor told me I should do this. <laughs> right, and when Elizabeth receives this proposal, obviously it doesn't, it doesn't ring true. She's like, no, thank you. And he's like, oh, great, I'll keep trying. And he leaves, it's great. That wasn't enough, right? It wasn't enough. He's trying to check these boxes. He said, this is the logical reason why we belong together. And she's like, that that's ugh. that's not how a relationship should function. Right? It leads Aggies to hiss when his name is uttered. Because we know that's not how a relationship should function. Instead, a relationship is built upon a mutual love and respect. It's built upon a care and compassion for one another, not just following this check, these check boxes that were laid out, some list. Instead, what Elizabeth eventually you know, where she eventually lands is, in the movie at least, she, she's under a waterfall or in the rain or she's wet. you got to be soaked. And Mr. Darcy says, Mrs. Darcy. And he says that like five times. She's like, yes. And they get married. <laughs> that's how we understand a romantic, flourishing relationship to be. And Obviously, there's more to it than just professing your love in the rain. But that's a big part. But we know that, okay, relationships are built more on, on more than just checking boxes. And in the same way, Paul is saying that our relationship with God, it, it goes beyond the law. The law is no longer our ultimate guide. It says it's still useful. We're gonna get to that in a minute. It says, but it's not the power. It's not the driving force. It's not your motivation for living according to the Lord's commands. It's not the law itself that we serve. It's the Lord. And should we still study the law? For sure. It still has value. It says, but our ultimate goal, our ultimate desire is to be near to the Lord. This is why James, when we studied it over the spring, his letter, he talks to his audience, his believing audience. He says, you should draw near to the Lord, right? Obey his commands. James is very, he's very forceful and insistent. You need to be living out the faith that God has given you. You need to live out the salvation. He says, but ultimately you need to draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you, As Jesus would say, apart from him, we can do nothing. We must abide. It's what we're just saying. We should draw near to the Lord. And so for us, practically, th- this is a, a nearness that we can put in, a discipline we can build in on a daily basis. It's something we can do more intentionally, uh, maybe a little bit less frequently. I think day-to-day, a great principle is that we know that we pick out a time, a place, and a passage. It's so helpful for us to know, okay, there's this specific time and a certain place that I'm going to be where I'm going to learn from. I'm going to listen to the Lord. I'm going to study some of his word. I'm going to have a passage selected or a book of the Bible that I'm walking through, right? A time and a place and a passage. That's a great daily practice. Another healthy practice that I remember learning years ago when I came on the grace staff was this practice of having a day with the Lord. It's something that we use. It's a, it's a tool that we implement here in our staff even to, the, even to this day, where once a semester, so maybe twice a year, or maybe you could do it quarterly, we say, okay, I'm going to set aside a day, and I'm going to pull away, and I'm going to be free from phone and work and distractions. I'm going to spend time just simply with the Lord. I'm going to bring a journal. I'll have a plan, maybe some passages selected beforehand. I'm going to spend time in prayer listening, maybe, maybe just being still and quiet before God. But there is incredible power to doing this, to have a habit of pulling away and drawing near to the Lord. Jesus himself would go to the mountaintop. He would pull away from his people so he would be near to his father. And we need that same practice. So I'd encourage you, look on your calendar, put it on your calendar. And maybe you've got to coordinate with a spouse, because you got kids and other responsibilities. But I'm telling you, this is something that can pay off huge dividends. If we say, hey, there's just this one day or maybe half of a day, the next Saturday morning for four hours, I'm just going to pull away. My phone is in my car, and I'm just going to sit in this park, or I'm going to sit at this other, you know, in a coffee shop, and I'm just going to be still before the Lord. There's so much power to that. It's what God desires. He wants us to spend time with Him in relationship. Paul says, This is the power of relationship that has now supplanted, has now come over the power of the law. We're under the law of Christ, not, not the law of Moses. And He's going to finish out the, this passage, starting in verse 7, speaking about then, what is the law still, in, still doing, right? Because there is still purpose for the law in our lives. He says, This He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Right, he's used the same language saying You died to sin, and now you've died to the law. So he's like, are, "Am I putting the same? Are they in the same bucket? Are they the exact same thing?" Certainly, I would. Or absolutely not. Certainly, I would not have known sin except through the law. He says the, one of the ways that the law still functions of, or serves an incredible purpose, an important purpose in our lives, is that it reveals. Sin. I wouldn't know some things were against the command or against the the desires and will of God if he didn't give me the law if he didn't show me you know what is good and what is bad he says I, and I need that right indeed I would not have known right he's using an example I would not have known what it means to desire something belonging to someone else if the law had not said do not covet so Paul's pulling the tenth commandment of the ten Commandments this this commandment that is really distinct from the rest because it's entire, a lot of them are how you relate to God, how you relate to people. So, but the 10th commandment, do not covet, is, is entirely internal, right? And I think he uses it because it's probably one of the hardest ones to obey. It, because it's this battle that wages war inside of us, every single one of us, all the time. That we will, we desire to have what we don't have. We desire to have what someone else has obtained, He says, I wouldn't have been able to name that. He says, I wouldn't have been able to identify that as contrary to the Lord's will if the law hadn't revealed that for me. Do not covet. But sin, verse eight, seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from the law, sin is dead, right? This is kind of going back to that point. It says sin through this commandment then arouses, it it inflames these wrong desires in me. It takes what is good and it twists it in my heart and mind. And all of a sudden I, I want to rebel, right? I want to touch that wet paint. I want to go fishing in that spot. I want to disobey the command that's given to me. He says, and what happens, he says, this is a way that sin has twisted the law because apart from the law, sin is dead. He doesn't mean sin doesn't exist. The term, the Greek term here is, is simply that it is, is dormant. It's, it's lying in wait, right? So he says, so there is an element of sin that really comes alive. It comes awake because God has shown us that it is in fact sin. And so he says in verse nine, that I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive and I died. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. So Paul is just, again, he's explaining how the law still functions in our life. He says that I had maybe ignorance at one point where I didn't understand all of the law. I didn't understand God's will and desire for my life. Now, that's not an excuse. As Paul said in Romans 1, even in our ignorance, we don't actually have excuse that on some level, we're not fully ignorant. On some level, we've all rebelled. That's ultimately our problem. It's not ignorance, it's rebellion. He says, but there were parts of me, there were were ways of living that I just didn't understand before God revealed his law to me. And so when I was given the command of God, that sin becomes inflamed, it leaves its dormant state, he says, and it kills me right? Sin leads to death. And so the very commandment that was intended to bring life, right? Because ideally, if we all perfectly obeyed the law given to the ancient Israel, it would bring incredible blessing and joy. But the problem is that we can't do that. None of us can. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Only he could fulfill the law. And so because of that, because of our failure to keep the law, it led us into death. And so he kind of restates this by saying that for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it I died. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He says, the law is not bad, it's not evil. It is still holy, meaning set apart. It is still righteous, it is still good. He says, but this is the the terribleness of sin that it could take what was so good and twist it into a means for our own destruction. And so in verse 13, he summarizes really the whole first 12 verses and says did that which is good then become death in me to me absolutely not but sin so that it would be shown to be sin produced death in me through what is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful it says this is why we're not under the law because the law was insufficient. God knew this. God, all, God knew that we would never be able to fully obey the law. God never gave us the enablement or the ability to obey the law apart from Christ. We need the guiding of his spirit now to make the right choice, to live according to his will. Paul says that through the law, sin has now produced death. So the law is still valuable in that we know what, is, what leads to death. He says, but, but we can't serve the law. We can't go after the law in and of itself because we'll just continually fail. We'll continually die. He says, therefore, we now recognize that sin has twisted the law. We need another way, right? We need another path because the law, what it does still now, and this is valuable, reveals sin. It reveals rebellion in our lives. I remember when I was in college, Uh, I woke up sophomore, junior year, and, man, I just had, like, this weird stiffness, like, soreness in my back. And over the course of, like, a week, it just got worse and worse to the point where, like, I could barely walk. Like, I I just was, like, I I had to be so still. It was so much pain. Every time I moved, I had to get one of my buddies who owned a scooter. He would, like, take me to and from class so I didn't have to walk across campus. Thank you, Tim. Uh, He's not dead. Um, But he... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I did that. But I was in so much pain, and I didn't understand why. But but thankfully, I was like, okay, I have pain, and I knew intuitively, okay, this probably isn't right. Like, it's probably not right for me to just always be in immense back pain as a 20-year-old. So I went to the doctor, and they did an MRI. And what they found was that I had this issue in my spine where, you know, one of the issues, one of the main issues is that I have a bulging disc in my back, which essentially means that just one of the things in there is squished. And it's bulging, that it's, it's just poised to pop. And I remember asking the doctor, I was like, okay, so what do I do? Like, is there like an injection? Is there like a medication I can take? He's like, no, you're just going to kind of have that. I was like, for like, it'll get better. He's like, no, there's just, it'll always be there. And then one day it'll pop. And I was like, oh, what? And so I was like, okay. He's like, I mean, you can try to strengthen the muscles around it. And you can do all these other things. You'll know, do these stretches and exercises. And so there, there were things that I could do, but the reality is that, wow, that's just there. That's just something that I have that I'll, I'll have always. And so... In the same way, the law, it has shown us, the law is not bad. That MRI machine was not evil, but it revealed to me, it was able to identify this is the true problem. This is the source of what is wrong in your life. The law does this. It reveals to us, this is what sin is. Like this is where you're stepping outside of the will of God. This is where you're seeking to rebel against his commands. So it's good. And the problem that arises, I think, more often than not is, is not necessarily that we're like thinking, okay, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm under the law and I always have to keep the law. I think we're pretty good in this day and age of, of giving ourselves mercy. Our problem oftentimes is that we then use the law as this MRI, this x-ray machine, to then find the sin in other people's lives and then either tell them about it or just think about it and then maybe bring it up in an opportune argument. We are so good at judging, passing judgment on other people over things that probably are actually wrong. But in the same breath, we are so good at justifying ourselves. Saying, well, you know, I was mean, but it's because like I had a hard day. Or, you know, I was, I was like really, you know, in a bad mood. But, it's, you know, these things happened. Or, yeah, I, you know, I skimmed a little off the top of this deal. But, you know, that's like I needed it. Justice for all. Mercy for me. And so what we find in Scripture, when Jesus himself speaks about the place of the law in our lives, he says the law is good, that it, it identifies what is wrong. He says, but you need to be careful that before you become obsessed over the speck in your brother's eye that you deal with the plank that's in your own. Paul is saying the law is good. It reveals what is wrong in our lives. And yes, there is time for accountability and, and in calling one another challenging one another on sin in our lives. But but ultimately, we have to recognize that every single one of us have sinned. We've all failed. We've all, as Paul says in Romans 3, fallen short of the glory of God. So we pray, ask the Lord for for forgiveness. We seek to, we, we ask for his forgiveness. We extend his forgiveness to others. We seek to live a life of love and grace, to love our enemy as ourself, to pray for those who persecute us, Because we know that ultimately that ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we are all dependent on the grace of God. And so when Jesus was asked in his ministry, what is the greatest command? Like, what what would you say? You know, number one, what's the number one command in all of scripture? The Pharisees are trying to stump him. He says, I'll tell you, it's all summarized in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law, all the prophets, all the teaching, it's all built upon this foundation. And so my hope, my encouragement for us is that as we continue in relationship with God, that we wouldn't find ourselves bound by these rules and regulations, that we wouldn't think, gosh, I've got to check all these boxes for the Lord to really love me, for the Lord to really approve of me. No, if I've put my faith in Christ, I am adopted into his family, I'm his son, I'm his daughter, and nothing will change that. Paul's going to get to that in Romans 8, next chapter. But as I live in his family, God says, this is ultimately, Jesus says, this is ultimately what it all is based upon. You wanna serve the Lord well? Love him with all that you have, with all that you are. Love your neighbor, love the people around you in a way that displays the glory and grace of God to them. And so this morning, as we close our time together, before we sing our final song, we're gonna be praying for this motivation. We're gonna be praying that the spirit of God would lead us in, in how and why and, and where we can, in fact, follow this greatest commandment. All right, so, so once a month, we do this as a, fan, as a church family. We're on a Sunday morning, we take some time at the end of the message to pray, not just in isolation, not just as individuals, but to, pr- to pray as a community, to pray as brothers and sisters who are given the same command, who are following the same God. And so my encouragement, my my hope is that here in a moment, you would find a few people around you, one or two or three. It could be people that you came with. uh, It could be someone that you're just now meeting, and that's great too. But you're going to find these people, you know, pick them out, have your draft. And then when you introduce yourself, very briefly, let's share this one simple piece. Let's let's pray for this one simple thing. Share, okay, this is an area, this is a space a space, a time, a responsibility, a relationship where I have an opportunity this week to love my God or love my neighbor. And we can share this just briefly. And you can be as general or specific as you want. My only ask is that you would be very brief. Because as you share this with one another, that's great, but then let's take some time to pray for one another, to ask the Lord for his spirit to guide and to empower us to live out this command, to love him, to love our neighbor, and in doing so to reflect his glory and grace to the world around us. All right, so find a few people around you, introduce yourself, briefly share, and then let's spend some time in prayer. I'll wrap us up, ready, set, go. God, we are thankful that you've given us this time, Lord, to come together, Lord, to encourage one another, to to admonish one another, Lord, to give each other, Lord, some accountability in our attempts to live lives that are honoring towards you, God. And it's it's not that we live this way so that you love us, but God, it's because you love us that we live this way. So, Lord, we pray that as we sing this final song about abiding in your love and in your grace, Lord, we pray that this really would be, that you would be the source of our strength and our motivation for obeying these commands to love you, to love our neighbor. So Lord, we just pray that that the requests that were already shared in our little groups this morning, that God, we would continue to pray for them, that you would move in a powerful way. So Lord, we pray that this worship would be honoring and pleasing to you. God, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.